Christian, let me begin this sermon by asking you guys a question. What are you and your church about? What are you and your church about? I think it's good to have an answer. Because unfortunately in our cultural climate today, saying that you are about Jesus is not enough. I get into a fair amount of conversations where I'm telling people that I'm a pastor of a local church. Uh, and I wonder, you know, what it is that they think I do. And what is it that they think I stand for? So I regularly try and clarify, you know, I anticipate that they'll probably have some sort of objections and questions. So I regularly try and clarify for them, you know, look, I'm a Christian. In other words, like I actually believe the Bible to be true. And as a pastor, I just teach straight from the Bible. Uh, that Jesus is the God-man, that he came to earth, that he took on flesh, that he died on the cross for our sins, and he can forgive us of our sins if we repent and trust in him. You should come visit us. We don't ask that you give us money. We just teach the Bible, right? That's kind of like, that's if I'm going to have a conversation with somebody, I'm going to tell them that. Let them know what I'm about. Let them know what the church is about. And I hope that that conversation... Right, That informs them of where I'm coming from. And so the first time possible visitor, right, they might think like, okay, so I, I get that what this is about. You know, you're not like the preachers of L.A. or the other types of preachers, you know, the prosperity stuff. Or if they are a Christian, you know, I hope that a conversation like that would help them hear that they would be fed the gospel or fed the Bible. They hear about what I am about. They hear about what the church is about. And I think that we all should have answers to these things if we're going to be talking with other people. Well, today in our passage, we read of the Apostle Paul telling the Roman Christians what he is about and what all Christians really should be about. So please join with me in turning to the book of Romans chapter 1. Uh, if you're using one of the black Bibles in front of you, you can be found on page 939. And this is the first of many sermons in the book of Romans. I don't exactly know how long it'll take, um, but I do know that as we turn to the Word of God, the Spirit will move and we will be fed and sanctified. Uh, Roman, as you, turn, as you turn there, Romans was written, it's a letter written by a man named Paul, the Apostle Paul. We're going to get into what exactly that means. And he was, he was writing, scholars think, around AD 57. He was writing to Christians in Rome <coughs> to see how they were doing and to encourage them in the faith. He had never met them before. He had never been to Rome to visit the Christians there. And here he's addressing the challenges that they were going through. And he also wrote to, to enlist them in his venture of bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. Now, again, Paul did not actually plant the church in Rome, though he certainly knew Christians in Rome. Uh, if you wanted to look there, you don't have to, but in Romans chapter 16, it's clear that he knew the Roman Christians, or some of them who had gone back there. And the church most likely got started as the Roman Jews. Think about when Jesus was crucified. In Acts chapter 2, it says that, Christian, or that uh, Jews from all over the region, who were spread out all over the Mediterranean, came to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, which was a major Jewish holiday, a major feast, and also the Feast of Pentecost. So they get there at Pentecost, they see that Jesus, supposedly the king of the Jews, according to the Christians, is crucified. And as they hear Peter, for example, preaching the gospel in Acts chapter 2, they get converted you know, it shows that thousands of, thousands of people became Christians. And then eventually they all go back home. And uh, it mentions there in Acts chapter 2 that there were um, Romans, Roman Jews, who had come to Jerusalem during that time. They go back to Rome and therefore the church is planted. And as Paul hopes to enlist their support in the mission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, he uh, sends them this letter 
with these opening verses. Look there in verses 1 to 7. This is our passage for today. And this is the introduction to the letter here. It reads, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Christ Jesus. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We have two points, if you're taking notes. Two points from the introduction of Paul's letter here. Number one, the missionary, and then number two, the missionary's message. Number one, the missionary, and number two, the missionary's message. Let's just dive into point number one, the missionary. If you're not familiar with uh, this guy, Paul the Apostle, Uh, He was a man who at least went on three missionary journeys, which are described in the book of Acts, right after the Gospels, then he got Acts. And based on the internal evidence of Romans, right, this is just a letter written by a guy to a group of Christians. It's Holy Spirit inspired, it is God's word, but we have to look at it like a letter, right, it's a real letter to real people. Based on the internal evidence of the letter, it's clear that Paul wrote the letter while he was on one of these journeys. So go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15, we're going to be turning a lot to uh, various passages today, just to give an overview of Romans, Uh, so be prepared, get your flipping fingers ready. You see there in 15.24, actually let's go ahead and start in in verse 22, 15.22, this is the reason why I've so often been hindered from coming to you, so you see this desire to go to the Roman church, But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. So there's his ultimate destination. And to be be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints, or or aid to the Christians there in Jerusalem. So you see what he's doing, right? He's looking to the past. Um, you see there, you can skim there in verse 20. He said, look, I basically, I'll go ahead and read that there. Uh, and thus I make it my ambition, this is 1520, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named. So he's mentioning the fact that if you look at the Mediterranean map, uh, <clears throat> on the western side, or sorry, on the eastern side, you would find like Jerusalem, Right? He basically recognized in all of his journeys that he has already preached the gospel from Jerusalem all the way uh, to this place called Illyricum, which is a substantial region of the Mediterranean. So literally, if Jerusalem is here, if you're looking on a map, uh, Illyricum would be all the way in this direction. But he wants to go here. This is Spain. And the Mediterranean is like an oval, right? The Mediterranean Sea. He's preached the gospel from here all the way, and then now finally he wants to go to Spain. And that's clear in 1524. But uh, at present, it says there in 1525, he's going to Jerusalem. Um, Now, we don't, I don't know if you have ever fundraised, for example. I mean, part of what Paul is doing is he's fundraising. Uh, I don't know if you've ever fundraised. But in order to raise funds, it's important to be really clear with what you're raising funds for, right? 
It's, it's important to be clear about your mission. Let's say you're go, you go on Shark Tank and you're trying to create a business. It's important you be clear about your mission. It's important that you be clear about your purpose and your practices. Now, let's leave the, the whole you know, uh, secular field aside here in terms of raising money. It becomes all the more important to be ultra clear when you're talking about a gospel mission. You've got to be clear about who you are and what you believe. And in these opening verses, Paul is stating what he is about, who he is and what he believes. And it is a summary, but it is a true summary nonetheless. A clear summary nonetheless. And he is wanting the Church of Rome to join him once again in his mission to Spain to bring the gospel where it was not preached before. And that's one reason why he writes this letter to the Romans. And uh, in Romans he offers an explanation of the gospel. Right, he's being clear about what he believes to these Christians. He's letting them know, look, my gospel is orthodox. It is legit. He explains what the gospel, uh, what the gospel is, and what the gospel life looks like. And the main theme really is in uh, there in one sixteen. If you want to boil it down to one word, you can think the main theme of Romans is gospel, which means good news. He says, therefore, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So you see this main theme he addresses really in the first handful of chapters, this vertical relationship between God and man. He tells man how he can be reconciled with this very God, that's vertical relationships. Uh, Similar to what he does in the book of Ephesians, for example. But of course, the vertical relationship then spills over into the horizontal relationships. And that's also where Paul goes. He, He speaks about, well, if the gospel is for all peoples, well, then how does the Jew relate to the Gentile? Does the Jew need to abandon their Jewish practices? Do the Gentiles need to adopt adopt Jewish practices? So that's how the church gets along in Jesus Christ, as Christ brings two formerly divided people into one new man, to use the language of Ephesians. He speaks also about how do Christians relate to the law of Moses, right? Because all of us here, as far as I know, are not Jews. We don't have any Jewish descent in us, Hebrew descent in us. So how do Gentiles like us relate to the law of God, which is found in the Old Testament? And so that takes up a significant portion of the book of Romans too. These are live issues today. And hopefully you guys would be asking similar types of questions. Well, if I'm a Christian today, what do I ma- how do I make sense of the Old Testament? Am I really a part of God's people or not? You know, things like that. What does it look like to live underneath the rule of Jesus as he is the king? So really that's just, you know, big picture outline type of stuff. And if you're uh, taking notes again and you want a big picture outline um, of the entire book in terms of structure, go ahead and take this down. Hopefully, as you read the book, as we go through it, you're going to be reading it too. So you can read it with this outline alongside of the Bible. Number one, you have the introduction, verses 1 to 17 of chapter 1. That's the introduction and 16 to 17 there. You've got a theme. Number two, you have the gospel as the righteousness of God by faith. The gospel as the righteousness of God by faith. That is... Really, chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through 4, verse 25, 118 to 4:25, And then you have, number 3, the gospel as the power of God for salvation. The gospel as the power of God for salvation. That's chapters 5, verse 1 to 839. And then you have the gospel in Israel. That's uh, chapters 9 through 11. 
And then you have the gospel and the transformation for all life. The gospel, gospel and the transformation of life, 12, 1 to 15, 13. And then finally, you have the conclusion from 15, 14 till the end. If you want that outline, you can email me. I'll be happy to send it to you. And that really just comes straight out of uh, Don Carson's book, Introduction to the New Testament. So anyways, with that big picture outline, let's turn and look more carefully at Paul's introduction here to the letter, which is verses 1 to 7. And so much is packed in these verses here. And as we look at our first point, the missionary... Point number one, the missionary. We learn three things about the missionary. We learn who the missionary's master is, so the missionary's master. The second thing, the missionary's task. And then third, the missionary's purpose. So first, the master. Second, the task. And third, the missionary's purpose. And all this is found in verse number one. Go ahead and look there again. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Three things I want you to know, church, about myself. That's what he's saying. Because I am an Orthodox person, a true follower of Jesus. Now, he says that first, he mentions who his master is. He is a servant of Christ Jesus. The word also can be translated to mean slave. A slave of Christ Jesus. It communicates right total obedience, total dedication, total commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. And this phrase is just straight, borrowing language from the Old Testament here. And you can, you can tell where he's, you know, he's kind of going towards, well, again, what does the Old Testament have to do with us today? He's reaching to the Old Testament using similar language that we see there, like Moses was called a servant of the Lord. Joshua, a servant of the Lord. Abraham, King David, other Old Testament notable fingers were all called servant of the Lord. But here, Paul says that he is a servant of Christ Jesus. Keep in mind, he's a Jew. He's trained in the Old Testament scriptures and he replaces Jesus Christ with, or he replaces servant of the Lord with servant of Jesus Christ, right? So we're already tipped off to who this Jesus Christ is. He is, in fact, the Lord. But to get to Paul, right, because we're looking at the missionary, if you're unfamiliar with his background, did you know that he was not always a slave of Christ Jesus? Before he was all about Christian obedience to his master, he was all about making Christian martyrs. From his own mouth in Galatians 1.13, Paul writes, For you, he's writing to the church in Galatia, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. He was not always an obedient slave of the master. And why don't you go ahead and turn to the book of Acts. Just turn, uh, Acts is right to your left. Just go ahead and go to chapter uh, 8. And as you turn, I'll give you a summary. Acts chapter 7 details the record of the first Christian martyr, that is Stephen. And he, he dies for Jesus Christ. Um, and if you look at Acts chapter 8 verse 1, who is right there standing over, uh, presiding almost over this execution of the Christian? It's Saul, it's Paul. He was formerly known as Saul. It says there, and Saul approved of his execution. You can, you can see here that really there is violence and persecution. And you can go ahead and read on. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered. That is, the Christians were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made a great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So you see here what he's about there, at least before he became a Christian. Saul, 
was an expert in the Old Testament law. He was a Pharisee. In other words, he was a teacher of the law. And he loved the Old Testament law. The problem, though, like many Pharisees of his day, as Jesus addresses in the book of Matthew, is that they ended up loving the law more than the Lord of the law. And so they lost the Lord. They missed the law as it pointed to Jesus Christ, the one who fulfilled the law. And followers of Jesus Christ, they knew that Christ was indeed the Messiah, the chosen one of God to deliver God's people from their sin. But uh, Paul didn't care. Jesus Christ didn't fit his idea of who the Messiah would be or should be. So what exactly changed? How does Paul go from being a killer of Christians to then being a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, the Lord Jesus revealed himself to him. You see there in Acts chapter 9, this details his conversion. Saul is going to persecute more followers of Jesus. Uh, You look there at 9 verse 1, but Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, so this was his own leader, and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, the way, that was was the name that they called the Christian, uh, the Christian way, Men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So what happens here, he's going to persecute Christians in Damascus and bring them, imprison them. Uh, But what happens, Jesus, though, appears to him. And look there, you see there in verse 5, he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. And praise God for his sovereignty there, right? Paul is dedicating himself to persecuting Christians. Jesus stops him reveals himself to him and says, look, the very Lord that you claim to love, you actually are persecuting. I am the Lord. And then he grants Paul a new heart, a new spirit and says, no, you continue going there, but you go there now to hear the gospel and to understand who I am yourself. What an upheaval this must have been, right? I mean, the guy was an expert in the Old Testament law. He was trained by a very famous, famous Jewish Pharisee named Gamaliel. Uh, And then now he goes through this great life upheaval thing, and uh, he's changed. Thank God for God's forgiveness, right? He was a violent man, killing Christians, but now he becomes a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just imagine all of the fallout that would happen. Maybe that same fallout would happen to you as you became a Christian. Your social uh, circles change. You are therefore forced to let go of your old identity. You force persecution from your former co-workers, your family, and friends. But, we know from 116 of the book of Romans, right? For I, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Paul is not ashamed here of what's going on. We, we don't get any record that he hesitates embracing who Jesus Christ the Lord is. He is a willing slave because the Lord opened his eyes. The zeal which was once without knowledge, after Jesus Christ reveals himself, now his zeal is is fueled by divine revelation of who Jesus Christ is. So he himself sees himself as a slave of Christ Jesus. The Lord now has become his master. That's his master. It is Jesus Christ, the Lord. From verse number one, we also come to understand Paul's task here. He was called to be an apostle. He's called to be an apostle. This phrase speaks of the capacity in which Paul was going, is going to serve the Lord here. He is an apostle. Now, even though we're talking about the missionary, right? We all could be missionaries if we're doing cross-cultural work, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. But actually, Paul is more than that. He is so much more than just a regular missionary. 
Paul is an apostle. Right? Not all missionaries are apostles, capital A, apostles. Uh, and, and the word itself can mean a few things. It could mean simply uh, a messenger. It could also mean a sponsored missionary, right? But Paul is more than those things. It is true, he is those things, but he's more than those things. Here in Romans chapter 1, the word apostle refers to the unique group of apostles appointed and charged by Christ to lay the foundation of the church, right? The church starts at a period of time in history, right? Someone has to lay the foundation for the church. And so that church begins when Jesus Christ pours out his spirit upon his people at Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. And, and Jesus appoints certain people to be his apostles. And Paul was one of them. And so his work of being an apostle involved preaching and involved teaching, sharing the gospel with other people. And so Paul and his companions go on missionary journeys, mission trips, planting churches in different cities, whether they be Jewish cities, Gentile cities, or uh, a mixed group of people in that particular city. If you think about it, though, if you pause and think about it, let's just pretend we are the Romans, the Roman church. We receive then... This letter from an apostle of God. How encouraging it would have been, right? Because we all got converted when we went down to Jerusalem. Now we go back to Rome. We start a church. We're gathering. We're trying to understand things the way we ought to. And then finally, we receive this letter from the apostle of God. It has authority inspired of God. They ought to listen to him. Primarily, first and foremost, most importantly, because of the message that he brings. Now, this is important here. The apostolic position is not worthy of authority if the message doesn't confirm who jesus christ is right so an apostle can claim to be an apostle but if he doesn't have the apostolic gospel it makes no difference so in galatians chapter one he says you were already uh he says if you receive a gospel other than the one we preach he said let let us be accursed he said let you be accursed because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, if anybody brings you a message other than the one that we have preached to you, let him be accursed. So what he's lifting up is not the apostle, it's not him, but it's the message of Jesus Christ. So you want to tie the position to the message. Always tie the position to the message. And this brings us actually to Paul's purpose. Paul's purpose. This is the third thing Paul says about himself. He was set apart for the gospel of God. Set apart for the gospel of God. Now from this verse, we see that Paul's life purpose was for the gospel, or once again, the good news. Paul here is just echoing Jesus Christ's words found in Acts chapter 9. Jesus says there that Paul was his, quote, chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel, close quote. Again, Paul had fully embraced Christ's call on his life. This was all part of the grace of apostleship. That's a language that is used here. Or you can think of it, the gracious apostleship. So basically the wonderful task of bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth and laying the foundation of the church. As it says there in verse 5, it is to bring about the obedience of faith among all nations. Now nations there means Gentiles. So this is the way he understands, this is the way he received Christ's calling and he's trying to fulfill it all by God's grace. His mission was to preach the gospel among those who had never heard whether Romans or Spaniards, as we already looked at. Remember there it says, he, he, Romans 15, he says he makes it his aim to preach the gospel where it has not yet been uh, preached. The goal of Paul's preaching, as one said, was to bring the Gentiles to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Simple summary. That's his task. Uh, and then associated with that is his purpose. He's set aside for the gospel of God. So anyways, in relation to this term, the obedience of faith, look there. That, that's what he's aiming for, the, to bring about the obedience of faith among all nations. Here, this means really accepting the gospel 
can be referred to as an act of obedience. So Paul in Romans chapter 10 says, you know, people have obeyed the gospel. So the gospel can be referred to as something that is to be obeyed. But this obedience of faith is not just a one-off event, right? I mean, Christians are called to continually live lives of faith and to also continually live lives of, of obedience that flows from faith. So when you're looking at that term, what does this obedience of faith mean? It really means obedience that flows from faith. And here he is set aside for the purpose that all would bow the knee to King Jesus and entrust their hearts to him. Now, for application, you know, we are not all apostles, but we certainly have the same mission to spread the gospel in general, to evangelize. And just as Paul introduces himself to the church in these handful of verses, you know, he's letting them know what he's about. Is you know, thinking about our own social circles here, if the folks you talk to you know, if you're talking to them about Jesus, I wonder, do they know what you are about? When you talk to them about Christianity, do they get a good sense of what Christianity is all about in relation to the King Jesus? I fear that too many of us present Christianity as something that is practiced, as opposed to a life of knowing and serving this personal Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, you guys know, we got to know as we're talking to people about Jesus Christ, Uh, that many people already think of Christians as people who follow rules, right? People who use their second day off uh, on their weekend to go to church. Maybe Christians are people who follow a certain way of life. And if you notice there, there's no notion of any personal Lord, no notion of a Jesus that we love, a Jesus that loves us. But so many people think Christianity is just something to be practiced. I mean, just the other day, Melanie and I were, uh, you know, at jujitsu class. And um, we were watching, uh, you know, our kids do this, and we were sitting next to our friends uh, whose kids are in the same class, right? And uh, I gave them, what is the gospel? And we invited her and her family to church, and she said with some hesitancy, after she she received this book that summarizes the gospel, you know, what is the gospel? She has it in her hand, she's looking at it, and she says, uh, almost with some sort of regret, I've not practiced Christianity in like four or five years. Will this book get me practicing Christianity. And, and I, you know, you, you got to stop and hear like, you know, you're, you're hearing the way that they understand the faith, right? They're talking about a lot of practicing, about something you do, something that you go to. They're thinking of church of something that, you know, something that to be, something to be practiced. And I said, hmm, you know, a better way to look at it is to understand that the gospel is first about who you should be living for. And then so she paused and she's like, hmm, that's good. She paused so long that her husband was like, hey, it's time to go. The class is over. It's time to go. And she was really thinking about that. Uh, so that's communicated in these verses here. He is a slave of a person. That is the Lord Jesus Christ who reigns over all. Paul and all Christians really are servants, not of a way of living, not, a, not after living a, after a empty philosophy, but servants of a risen and personal Lord Christ Jesus. So friends, when you invite people to church, One way that you can communicate that Christianity is vastly different than something you practice is simply letting them know why you go to church. I go to church to know God more through his word. Come to church, come visit us. I go to church to read his, to read God's word to us, to know him more, to gather with his people, to sing his praise. I mean, you see that right there. If you're talking, you're actually having a conversation with someone. You move from mere practice to a personal lord and that's that's what i think was one thing that we gained from this introduction here 
That's one way that you can move once again from practice to a personal Lord. Uh, another example is, uh, you know, I was texting, texting another friend, and um, he jokingly said that, uh, he, he was jokingly impugning my character, just, just as a joke. And right, so I'm a pastor, right? I'm a Christian, first and foremost. And I wanted to, be re- I wanted to make it really clear, hey, look, if you're impugning my character about this particular topic, let me be clear. If you look on my computer, we were talking about uh, pornography and things like this. Um, I said, if you look on my computer, you will not find, by God's grace, a website linked with pornography. You will not find that. And the reason why I was so eager to tell him that is because, really, I'm protecting the fame of his name. Right? So even in the ways in which, even in speaking about the laws, right, the ethic, the good deeds that we're supposed to do, the morals that we follow, we could just present it as simply like, yeah, you know what? I'm not supposed to uh, cheat on my wife. I never have cheated on my wife. But you can take it a step further and talk about Ephesians chapter 5. I never cheat on my wife because I am so committed to displaying God's faithfulness, Christ's faithfulness to the church. Just as Christ has loved me, so I want to love my wife in the same. And there you go from practice to person. Practice is important. Person is more important. We want to help those that we talk to move from thinking that Christianity is something to be practiced, something that comes from man's thoughts or man's methods or obeying man's laws to hearing all of a sudden from God, which brings us to point number two. Point number two, the missionary's gospel. We looked at the missionary, and now we look at the missionary's message or the missionary's gospel. It is not man's gospel, but you look there, verse one, it says there, the gospel of God. That's what he's been set apart for, the gospel of God. Now, if you're visiting with us and you know yourself not to be a Christian, let me be clear. The gospel does not arise from man. It is not the gospel of man. Paul doesn't say I've been set aside for man's gospel, man's good news. The Bible says that man, if you're looking at what comes from man, it's not the gospel, but it's actually problems. It's actually sin. The Bible says that man got ourselves into the problem that we are in. Death and sin came into the world through one man, as Romans, as Paul's going to explain in Romans Later on, so all of our ills, the Bible says, stems from man's sin. When man rejected their good creator and his good creator's rule over them. If you want to think about it this way, you think about a little microcosm of this on a larger scale, but a little microcosm of this is in, uh, you know, your family life. What happens if your two-year-old throws off your authority, curses at you, and says, I'm never going to listen to your rule. I'm never going to submit to your authority or your law. In fact, I'm going to reject your wisdom and live according to my own wisdom. I'm going to reject your loving kindness and just go seek it from other things outside of your authority, assuming we are good authorities. We don't have to, to think about this very long to know that such bad consequences are going to come from that child's rebellion, from that child's sin. Well, the same thing happens with us and God the Father. God, our very creator. We have rejected his rule, and so really bad things have entered into the world. Sin and death and even God's judgment. Now, man in their continual rejection of God will try and come up with all supposed good plans to announce it as good news to solve their problems, right? Because they've rejected God. Now, all of a sudden, they're going to develop their own good newses to get themselves out of the problem. So they look at societal disorder, right? You can think of a certain country in, in uh, North, uh, certain East Asian country determined to launch intercontinental ballistic missiles, right? They think clearly something is wrong. So they think, you know what the problem is? The gospel is, the good news is socialism. It's communism. Or even democracy solves all of our problems. 
and they hold this out as a gospel of good news to restore order and justice that they are so pining for. They don't have to look at societal disorders and injustices only. They can look at personal ills, right? Our problems, your problems, and the desires that are very much present in our own sinful lives, right? And then you come up with various personal gospels, which are false gospels. You know what? I, I have this internal desire in me that's ruling my, my body even and my mind. And you know what? Here's the gospel. We can marry whoever we want to and marry however many people we want to. Or you know what? We can just go on and be whoever we feel like being, whether we are born a male or a female, regardless of how God has made us. I'm going to create my own gospel that aligns with my internal desires. And so we promise ourselves freedom. Or you can think about it this way. You know, we feel the need for significance. Some of us just got back from, uh, you know, a trip to Zion National Park. And we stand before these, these amazing uh, wonders of the world, Grand Canyon, etc. And all of a sudden we are so humbled. And this happens to the non-Christian and the Christian all by God's grace. And then we start trying to figure out what is this internal desire for significance. And how can I create a gospel that meets this desire for significance. Or maybe uh, some sort of false gospel that explains away how sometimes I don't feel so significant. And then we end up worshiping idols, worshiping the created things, the sun, the moon, the reptiles, or even your very own self. You can come up with theories about evolu- evolution from nothing. You offer significance. It's a gospel of significance, a gospel of a place in the universe, um, but not with God. See how easy it is to come up with all these false gospels. But those are the gospels of man. But friends, solutions that come from those who got us into the problem in the first place are bound to fail us, aren't they? The reason why the gospel is good news, thinking about the big picture here, is because it is all about God's initiative to save sinners through Jesus Christ. Thinking once again about that one word theme gospel here, if you want a short uh, expansion of a definition, you have God's initiative to save sinners through Jesus Christ. And that is exactly what is discussed in the first few chapters of the book of Romans. God created man. Man sins against their creator because we want to live our own ways. We followed our very own selves. We've thrown off the shackles of accountability and we have earned for our unrighteous selves God's just judgment. Praise God, though, in the book of Romans, God also speaks of, through Paul, how God himself has provided a way to have fellowship with him again. Even though we as sinners rejected him, God pursued us in Jesus Christ. And therefore, we can know our creator and we can live life in his kingdom. We can know freedom even underneath his good rule where we come to worship and serve him, the only true king. This way of fellowship and forgiveness comes all through Jesus Christ who paid for our sins on the cross. Where we should have lived a perfect life, God in his love and his grace sent Jesus Christ to live that perfect life for us. Where we should have uh, embraced and receive the punishment of our sin, Jesus Christ bears that for us so that we could be forgiven. So where we all should have been judged, God laid the judgment on his son as our substitute for all who would repent and believe. And so we would know forgiveness. We would be declared righteous. We would be adopted into God's family. We could just go on and on and on and all about all the benefits, the wonderful benefits of knowing this Jesus Christ, knowing the Father through this Jesus Christ. But friends, you can be reconciled and restored to your very own creator. 
All of a sudden, when we know who this Jesus is, we become a willing slave. And I'm going to get more into that uh, further down here. That's why Paul is a slave of Christ Jesus. That's why he is called to be an apostle. That's why he's set apart for the gospel of God. So that the message of salvation would ring to the ends of the earth. To the ends of the nations. And Paul gives us a little taste of this gospel here in verses 2 and 3. He's continuing to say, right, that it is not of man, but it is of God. Now, this has huge significance for Jews and Gentiles together. But here he makes it clear in verses 2 and 3 that it is not of man, but it is, in fact, of God. And he says there that this gospel of God was promised by God in the Old Testament. Promised by God in the Old Testament. So uh, he doesn't say this gospel of God, which I made up in the first century. No, he reaches back. He says, look at your Old Testaments, right? This is an expert of the Old Testament, a teacher of the law. He says, you look back there. The gospel was promised by God in the Old Testament, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. You see, God's gospel is by God's promise. God's gospel is by God's, through God's prophets. And God's gospel can be found in the Old Testament. I mean, just imagine Paul. Before Christ revealed himself to him, right, an expert of the law, but he had lost its true meaning. He can't see the fulfillment. He can't see its aim. We, right, we assume that he's just like every other Jewish Pharisee, right, who prized the law over the Lord. But in Christ revealing himself to him, he comes to understand the true nature of the law, the true nature of the Old Testament scriptures. And he takes time to explain the nature of the law in the book of Romans, And we'll see its significance to all people, whether Jew or Gentile. But this gospel, once again, is not from man, but it is from God. As we continue to investigate the missionary's gospel, we see that it is of God. Now we turn to look at the fact that these gospel promises concern God's Son. These gospel promises concern God's Son. This gets at a specific content that was in the mind of God about His plan to save Right? It's not first century stuff, but stuff that originated really in the mind of God and it was revealed in ages past. And you see this. This is the way that Paul understood the Old Testament. Romans 3.21 The law and the prophets bear witness to it. That is the righteousness revealed in Jesus Christ who died on the cross. The law and the prophets bear witness to it. They point forward to it. They speak, if you have ears to hear, of it. You have this idea of what God has promised in centuries past has now been fulfilled in the gospel of God in Jesus Christ. It's been, it's come to fulfillment here. This is exactly why Paul brings up the fact that Jesus was a descendant of David in the flesh. You guys see that there? Descendant of David in the flesh. Uh, Now what he's going to do in these, in these couple verses here, he's going to talk about descendant of David in the flesh and then talk about the son of God in power after he was raised by the spirit of holiness. Some people have interpreted this to mean, really here, what they're talking about are the natures of Jesus Christ. You have his flesh nature, and then his divine nature. I actually don't think that that's what's going on here. Uh, and here I'm, just, I'm, I'm following many scholars, like Doug Moo, for example, Thomas Schreiner, if those names are major commentators, uh, Greek experts. Um, what's going on here? is that, is that uh, Paul here is referring to the, the, the earthly life of the Messiah, and then after he was crucified and resurrected, he has a new stage in, in his life as the God-man, the resurrected life. And so when the Messiah was raised and seated on the right hand of God, where he is reigning even right now, he is the Son of God in power. He hadn't, he hadn't uh, 
experienced that, that, that authority as the God-man previously. Now, of course, he was a son of God the whole entire time. He was worthy of all glory and honor and power as a son of God. But in time, he actually takes on flesh and becomes the God-man, the Messiah, the chosen one, the prophesied one, the son of God. The eternal son of God takes on flesh to become the God-man, the Messiah. And then at some point in time, he is crucified and he is raised from the dead as that God-man and then is seated at God's right hand. So he's kind of looking at these stages, the stage of the Messiah on earth. And the stage of the Messiah as he is seated at the right hand of God in power, the son of God in power. That's what it's getting at here. But anyways, he talks about this descendant of David in the flesh. Remember, Paul, the apostle is all about living for Jesus and worshiping Jesus. He wants us to know, right, who Jesus is. He is the eternal son of God, no doubt, but he is the eternal son of God who took on flesh. And he came actually through David's line, just as God promised in the Old Testament. Right? This is important for Jews, right? Uh, and and uh, non-Jews. You read this from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. You don't have to, you don't have to turn there. There's going to be other verses we're going to turn to. But this is what 2 Samuel speaks of a thousand years before Jesus came, right? So this is a prophecy. God says, when your days are full, he's speaking to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, in other words, you die, he says, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall establish a house for my name and I will establish a throne of his kingdom forever. So you got to think, okay, does Solomon live forever? No. All the kings that come after him, you know, the kingdom breaks, etc., etc. Do they live forever? No. The Son of God in power lives forever, and he came through David's actual line. Now, get this, okay? Now turn to Jeremiah 23, verse 5. Turn to Jeremiah 23, verse 5. If you're sitting next to somebody who might not know their way around the Bible, you can help them get there. Now, this is 400 years later when Jeremiah is prophesying to Judah. So you have, let's say, the prophecy that God gives in 2 Samuel 7, a thousand years before Jesus. Now we fast forward 400 years after that. Jeremiah 23.5. This is God speaking. I have heard what the prophets have said who uh, who prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed a dream. That's the wrong verse. Well then, let's move on to the next one. Jeremiah 33.5. Jeremiah 33, 14 to 17. <clears throat> and you see here that this, uh, the heading in your Bible, mine reads, the Lord's eternal covenant with David. Well, David's long dead. Well, let's figure out what he's talking about. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up from David. So think, think about a stump, right? The stump is gone. The stump is dead. What's with this branch, right? Well, you have new growth all of a sudden that comes from the stump. This branch to spring up from for David and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. 
And the, Levit- the, the Levitical priest shall never like a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices forever. You turn over to Ezekiel. Just one book to the right. Two books to the right. Ezekiel 34. This is God prophesying through Ezekiel. He says there, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. David's long dead, remember that? My servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and, and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. Now, with, with these New Testament verses, we can just go on and on. If you want more of them, I can, I'm happy to email them to you, uh, even the one that uh, I didn't read. When we come to the New Testament, we begin to understand why, for example, let's say the Gospel of Matthew is so determined to make sure that readers know that Jesus is tied to David. Verse 1 of chapter 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Or in the Gospel of Luke, Luke makes a point to state that Joseph was of the house of David. And then when Jesus enters into, into Jerusalem, where the kings have, where kings have reigned, right? what does the crowd say? Hosanna to the... Son of David. And of course, as Christ moves to the cross, he wears garments of kingly color that is purple and even dons a crown. Though he is a king, he is not the type of king that the Jews expected, which is the very same reason why Paul was persecuting Christians. But for those who understood the promises, they see that, the, they see that Jesus Christ is the Messiah arrived in the flesh. And you hear this even in the apostles' teaching. So in the book of Acts... Chapter 2, verses 32 to 34. You can go ahead and turn there. The Spirit is poured out on the people at Pentecost. And the church age has officially begun. Jesus Christ has already been raised from the dead. And Peter all of a sudden stands up and starts preaching the gospel to Jews. You look there at 32 and 34 of chapter 2. He says there that, well, gosh, this is kind of all over. You look there, this reference in verse 25 about David. For David says concerning him, even David prophesied about Jesus. You look there in verse 32, this Jesus that God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, so David himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. And really, if you just read chapter 2, you'll see that it's a fulfillment of the Psalms of David. So Jesus very clearly is this messianic kingly character that has come to reign over his people. But as Paul wants Christ the king to receive all glory, he not only addresses the kingly lineage where Christ has come, that's the life and the flesh of the Messiah, He also addresses the heavenly throne where Christ has gone. He addresses the heavenly throne where Christ has gone. This is resurrected life after being raised in the spirit. He wants our eyes, right, to look back to generations past, the line through which Jesus Christ came, life in the flesh, to then, all of a sudden, life in the heavens where Christ the Messiah is seated presently and where he reigns forever. You look there, verses 3 and 4 of the book of Romans. 
He says, concerning the son, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. It says there once again, and he was declared to be the son of God in power. The point, once again, is not that Christ was declared to be what he already was. That is the eternal son of God. That's not the point. The Greek word here for declared can be accurately translated, more accurately, more accurately translated as determined or appointed. He was determined to be the Son of God in power. He was appointed to be the Son of God in power. That's the point, right? That in Christ's resurrection from the dead, the God-man was appointed and elevated to a position of authority that the God-man once again did not have as the God-man to that time. While Jesus was on this earth, he was Messiah and the Son of God, but his death and resurrection inaugurated a stage in his messianic existence that was not formerly his. Now he reigns in heaven as Lord and Christ, as one commentator wrote. No doubt Christ was the Son of God from eternity, but upon his resurrection he was appointed to be the Son of God in power, to rule and to reign where everything is now subjected to him. Now, friends, I know that's kind of heavy, right? Heavy in the Old Testament. Heavy trying to figure out, well, what what does it have to do with us? What does it have to do with Paul and the people of God and, and then to the ends of the earth, okay? So now let's talk about application. Think about it this way. Think about if you were living underneath the rule of a tyrant so determined to start World War III, and you yourself know that this is not good. And that your very own country will be destroyed. Your people will be slaughtered. All because your tyrant is ruling over you. But there is in the wind news that a righteous ruler will in fact overthrow the tyrant and then enthrone himself. Where his righteous rule will be made known. So you can think here, right, when he's talking about son of David enthroned on high where he sits as the son of God in power raised in the spirit of holiness. Here you think about a king's coronation. Where the tyrant is dethroned and the righteous ruler is enthroned. Just imagine if your family, your own self, gets word of the rumor that there is this righteous king to come. Imagine the possibilities, the hope, the confidence, the rest, and the trust that the king's citizens can have because the king is going to be in his rightful place as he assumes the throne as he embraces the scepter of righteousness, and then as he issues new laws that come from his good, loving character. And those laws, friends, go out to the ends of the earth. That's what's going on here in this introduction. Calling us to read more about the benefits that come because the king has been enthroned on his throne, crowned to be the rightful ruler. Peace on earth. Friends, that's exactly what's going on when Christ was raised, when he was enthroned on high. This is the hope that Christians have. A new era has been ushered in, and the Spirit of Christ reigns among his people, even now giving us a, a slight taste, and in very many ways a strong taste, of life underneath his rule. Romans talks about this. Romans talks about what life in the Spirit is like. Think about Romans 8. Set free from condemnation. Romans 8, 2. We have life and peace with God, Romans 8, 6. We have the promise of eternal life, Romans 8, 11. We now know God as Father, and we can call on Him as Father, Romans 8, 15. And we are heirs with His kingdom, heirs with Christ Himself, in Romans 8, 17. And now we know God's steadfast love for us in Jesus Christ. And nothing, 
can separate us from his love in Christ. Romans 8, 38 and 39. That's life in the spirit. The life that Jesus Christ himself ushers into this sinful world. And if that is life with Jesus, I gladly bow the knee and become his servant. Indeed, a willing slave of Jesus Christ the Lord. Friends, if you're visiting with us and know yourself not to be a Christian, Christianity is not about what you practice. It's first and foremost about who you should worship and the king that you should live for. Friends, these are the blessings that come through knowing his rule and reign personally and knowing his rule and reign in the church. Friends, would you want to be forgiven? Wouldn't you want to be ruled by this Lord to know his law, to know his good character, his loving nature, and his mercies, which are new every single morning? And friends, you can in fact know that if you turn from your sin and believe on him. Or, friends, on the day of judgment, you will find your very own kingdom that you have built for yourself toppled so quickly. We already know Christ has made his rule and reign known as he defeated sin and death once and for all. That's the good news of Jesus Christ, that through his death on the cross, we can indeed know forgiveness through his shed blood and in his resurrection. This is the way that Paul saw life. Christ, the king, had called him. He had set him apart. Christ had bestowed on him a gracious apostleship, verse 5, to bring about the obedience of faith or the obedience that flows from faith for the sake of his name among all nations. He says there, including you. He says, you too are a subset of these people called to belong to Jesus Christ. To conclude here, as Paul introduced himself and what he is about to the Roman church, we see that he is about a personal Lord who saves. He is the eternal Son of God, a descendant of King David according to the flesh, but who now has been installed and who reigns currently on his heavenly throne. He is Lord and Messiah. And he brings about this wonderful new age of renewal in him. Christianity, once again, is not merely about a way of living or a system of thought. It is first and foremost about our wonderful Lord whom we can trust in. Thus we see Paul's ultimate purpose. His ultimate purpose is in verse 5. Paul wants to bring about the obedience faith of faith. Why is that? Is it because Christians are like the religious Twitter followers who just want more and more followers? No. The ultimate purpose is for the sake of Christ's name. The name of Jesus Christ, the Lord. So your friends, your friends, you see here that his mission is ultimately not about winning converts primarily, but primarily about the great king receiving all honor and glory and power that is due his name, because he is the only king who reigns. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we exalt you. We thank you so much that you are who you say you are, just as you promised hope for sinners, just as you promised reconciliation, just as you promised that we can have a life of peace with our King that we ourselves had rebelled against. Oh Lord, we thank you for your fulfillment of these things. Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you for being our perfect King, our glorious King, our good King. We thank you, Lord, now that not only have you revealed the gospel to us, but you bring us into, you give us a mission. You also, in some ways, have set us apart to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth, to be sharing the gospel with all those who we are around. 
We thank you, Lord, that we have the opportunity to bring this good news. The news that people, sinners, can be forgiven of their sin and made right with the only true King, their very own Creator. Lord, we pray that we would have such zeal, just as Paul did, that our zeal would in fact be uh, informed by a knowledge of the Scriptures. Lord, we pray even as we have conversations with other Christians and non-Christians, Lord, that we would, you would help us be so clear about who we are about that we would be about our very personal, loving Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you would make this true for us in this particular church, in this particular place. In your name we pray. Amen.